On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. Before we start the podcast, I wonder if you've discovered The Letter from Loring Park, our weekly email bundle of goodness that lands in your inbox every Saturday morning. We highlight what we're airing and writing and reading, along with news of upcoming events and opportunities to be part of our wider conversations. To subscribe now, go to onbeing.org. On Being is supported in part by Penguin Books, the publishers of Krista Tippett's New York Times bestselling book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, now in paperback. Maria Popova says, Becoming Wise is a tremendously vitalizing read, touching on every significant aspect of human life with great gentleness and a firm grasp of human goodness. Find the paperback now wherever books are sold. All of reality is interaction. This everyday truth is as scientific as it is philosophical and political, and it unfolds with unexpected nuance in Carlo Rovelli's science. He's the author of the global bestseller, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. This tiny book is, in my mind, the science writing equivalent of moving from prose to poetry. He's taken up vast ideas beyond most of our imagining, like quanta, grains of space, and time and the heat of black holes. He's condensed them into spare, beautiful words that render them newly explicable and moving. Seeing the world through this physicist's eyes, there is no such thing as here and now. Our senses convey a picture of reality that narrows our understanding of its fullness. This is also true of the huge wave of happenings, as he puts it, which is a human self. A thing is something which uh, remains equal to itself. A stone is a thing, because I can ask where the stone is tomorrow. While a happening is something that is limited in space and time. A kiss is not a thing, because I cannot ask where is a kiss tomorrow? Where is this kiss tomorrow? I mean, it's just happened now. I see, okay. And I think that we don't understand the world uh, as made by stones, by things. Uh, we understand the world made by kisses, or things like kisses, or by happenings. Yeah. So even for you, a stone seen in the long expanse of time and an understanding of how it became what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's if a happening, we, not a thing. We live, uh, we live a hundred years, but suppose we lived a billion years. A stone would be just a moment in which some sand gets together and then it disgregates. So it's just a momentary getting together of sand. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on being. Carlo Rovelli is professor of physics at I. Marseille University, where he's director of the Quantum Gravity Group at the Center for Theoretical Physics. He's one of the founders of loop quantum gravity theory, an attempt to reconcile the fact that the two pillars of 21st century physics, general relativity and quantum mechanics, contradict each other. Carlo Rovelli was born in Verona, Italy, and was in a studio in France for this conversation. You know, I think something, um, a quality that runs through all of your writing um, seems to be this kind of intertwined, interactive curiosity about and commitment to both, um, well, physics as well as philosophy and history. And I'm curious as we start, if you trace the roots of these passions and the connection you see between them. In your earliest life, like, do you think this was sparked by something in your childhood? Um, I think physics, uh, philosophy, history are not very separated uh, uh, because they're all parts of a common desire to understand better the world around us. And um, there the are many ways of being a scientist. One can be a scientist because he's in love with mathematics, or somebody else can be a scientist because he's in love with a spe specific problem and likes to uh, plunge into one specific thing. But then there are scientists who are just curious about the world in general and how the world is made. Um, what can we mm -hmm. learn about the way the, the world uh, works? And uh, there are many of those, uh, and uh, I'm one of those. Uh, and uh, from that mm -hmm. perspective, science uh, is just uh, 
learning the great scheme of things as much as possible. And uh, for that, uh, philosophy yeah. is very close. Uh, and history is the path of this discovery. And I think science is not a, a set of acquired knowledge. Uh, it's the, the journey toward uh, acquiring more and more knowledge. Um, I spent my youth being traveling and being a little bit uh, revolutionary in the, in the, uh, the Italian <laughs> politics of the time. Yeah. And at some point, uh, uh, we wanted to change the world. I'm of that generation. We failed. And mm. at some point, I just fell in love with physics, uh, that I was, I was taking some classes in physics. And I said, oh, this is fantastic because uh, this allows me to see more far than what I've been seeing so far. This allows me to really learn something completely new and to see what's wrong in common way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So I have to tell you, I read um, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics this past summer, and um, I just found it astonishingly beautiful. And oh, thank you. <laughs> so what I would like to do is walk through some of the observations you make that I just feel are immediately you can one can immediately capture and reflect on as a human being whether you know science or not and here's some, here's a line of what I, it would say the poetry of the book you know, here in the vanguard beyond the borders of knowledge science becomes even more beautiful incandescent in the forge of nascent ideas of intuitions of attempts of roads taken then abandoned of enthusiasms in the effort to imagine what has not yet been imagined <laughs> uh, yeah, congratulations to my translator in English. <laughs> it's beautiful, Italian. isn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my translators yeah. are very, very good. <laughs> yeah. The fascination of science is not what we have learned. It's the process of learning. It's uh, the discovery. I mean, it's, it's the wonder of what we learn. Wow. Um, then uh, the wonder creates more curiosity, and then we realize that there's so much we have not learn yet. I don't think we are near the end of physics at all. I don't think we are near mm. the end of science at all. There is so much to be discovered. And the beauty of the scientific uh, enterprise uh, is that we are in touch with the unknown, what we don't know, and we try to make steps into it. So that's the strength of science, right. that it works out of beauty, out of intuition, out of imagination, but it has a very solid way then of, of checking. And uh, which also means that some many beautiful ideas turn out to be wrong. And I, I think, you know, what you also write about, and, and, and many people have the, I mean, the Einstein is this singular mind through which the general theory of relativity came together, a coherent vision of gravity, space, and time. And yet even Einstein struggled with what happened, with the, with the discoveries he made, I mean, with the emergence of quantum theory, because he really wanted there to be some kind of overriding objective reality that we could describe. You know, a driving point that you make as you describe quantum physics um, and really all of physics is we must accept the idea that reality is interaction. Yeah, this is a very general point in the in science. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, I'm not sure I'm able to articulate it entirely, but I think it comes out from many sciences and uh, certainly from quantum mechanics, uh, uh, but also from others. We do understand the world better, not in terms of things, uh, but in terms of uh, interaction between things, uh, how things interact with one another, even in biology, right? We understand biology in terms of evolution, how things change and how we, we understand the 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 antelope because there is a lion, uh, and the lion because there is antelope. Uh, we, we don't understand them in, in isolation. Oh, antelope, yeah. Antelope, sorry. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at the core of, of, of quantum physics, this comes out very, very strongly. Somehow quantum physics does not describe how things are, but how things interact with one another. So right. I think this is general. Even we human beings, I'm, I'm not a thing. I'm a, I'm a net of interactions with uh, the world around me, with the people who knows me, who love me. Hmm. It's a more powerful way of trying to grasp reality by focusing on uh, what interact with what and how. And somehow the objects are just the nodes of the interactions. They're not primary thing, a secondary thing. I think. Right. I mean, so when I was growing up, in studying science in school, 
in a very rudimentary way, uh, I learned that an atom is composed of a proton, a neutron, and an electron. The way you describe what, what quantum physics sees is that an electron is a set of jumps from one interaction to another, and in fact, only electrons only exist when they are interacting with something else. Yes, this is at the core of quantum mechanics, which is one of the parts of modern physics which is totally central, and at the same time we understand less. Um, quantum mechanics works spectacularly mm. well. I mean, we have computers based on quantum mechanics, we have all sorts of technology based on quantum mechanics, and still there is something mysterious about it. Uh, something slippery about it. It's not mm. a clean, transparent uh, theory, which means that we have to, I suppose, um, struggle more to, to understand it. Behind all that is the fact that we we understand so much about the world, but we're not so smart after all, right? <laughs> the world is complicated. Mm. It's horrendously complicated. And so we understand bits and pieces of it which allow us to do all sorts of things. I mean, to go to the moon, to understand that there are black holes, to... to all sorts of things. But at the same time, we know that both at the core of all this and uh, and in parts we haven't explored yet, there's so much we still to do to, to better understand the world. You, you wrote... Sure. Um, please. Yeah, go on. No, no, please, please. There's a little gap here, so sometimes when you're speaking, I can't... So just I, for, forgive me for interrupting and... We can edit this out. So keep going. Uh, I'm Italian, so we interrupt one another all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, you you wrote um, you wrote this. It's as if God had designed reality with a line that was not heavily scored, but just dotted it with a faint outline. Yes, uh, one of the key aspects. Uh, of quantum mechanics uh, is, uh, as you were saying, we, we cannot think as an electron, as a little stone that moves in space uh, and is here and then here and then here and then here. It has a different m- modes of, uh, of happening. So one way, one alternative way is just to think that it sort of materialized here and then materialized here and materialized there. That's one of the ways of thinking of quantum mechanics. It goes back to the beginnings. Heisenberg is one of the scientists that first entered into this magic of quantum mechanics. And, uh, and I like this idea because as the world becomes more light, there's less full. So I use this image. I'm an atheist, so this reference to God, uh, it's more literally reference than... Uh, right. Than and when you say becomes, when the world becomes more light, what do you mean? I think that, let me put it in this way, there is one view of the scientific description of the world, uh, which is uh, the world is just matter. There are particles moving around. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, this is anything century physics. It's not true anymore. It has changed. And then in the, in the sort of 19th century, there was a period in which physics was saying, well, maybe we understand it's just energy. It's all forms of energy. That's not true anymore, <laughs> mm-hmm. because in general activity, you cannot think in terms of, uh, of, of energy. There is, uh, there is else. So now we think in terms of quantum fields uh, on space-time. But if you do, if you want to go quantum gravity, you cannot think in those terms either. <laughs> so the stuff of the world is not something we have clear. The stuff of the world, uh, fundamental physics, uh, is not heavy matter. It's much more light. Mm, and uh, the way we describe it is in terms of interaction between systems. Let me give you a pictorial thing. It's like uh, a little flash here, a little flash there <laughs> when two things uh, in, interact. In that sense, there is a, there is lightness. And also, in that sense, the world is very, very different from our uh, sort of daily intuition. Our image of things and uh, things uh, that permeate time and time passes and space where things are immersed... Uh, all this is not wrong, of course, but it's an approximation. Right. It's like the flat Earth. The, fl- the Earth is flat around us, but if you look a little bit on, on a larger scale, it's not flat, it's round. So on a, on a larger scale, the world is very different from our intuition, okay, and right. it simplifies. Like, uh, mm. like space becomes a gravitational field, uh, um, a lot of different things uh, become the same thing. Mm. It simplifies, mm. and uh, what I try to do in the book is give an overall picture of the way I understand it uh, with the understanding that we're far from a final picture. I'm 
Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the physicist Carlo Rovelli, who's written the slim, beautiful bestseller, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. So, for example, here's something, like when you write about particles, you say, on the one hand, there's no such thing as a real void, one that is completely empty. I mean, even the, even the word space, I think, is outdated, right? Because it is space outdated. It suggests, <laughs> it, it suggests something empty. But what you say, what's there instead, as you say, is not is a world of happenings, not of things. Yes. Uh, a thing is something which uh, remains equal to itself, right? A thing is a stone is a thing because I can ask where the, the stone yeah. is tomorrow. While a happening is something that is limited in space and time. I don't know. A kiss is, a, is not a thing because I cannot ask where is the kiss tomorrow? Where is this kiss tomorrow? I mean, it's just happened now. I see. Okay. And I think that um, we don't understand the world uh, as made by stones, by things. Uh, we understand the world made by kisses or things like kisses yeah. or by happenings. In other words, the, the elementary quantities or ingredients for describing the world are not things which remain through time. Uh, they are just limited in space and, and, and time. And the things which remain through time are processes that repeat themselves. Mm. A stone is just a, a a common flickering of electrons and things and stuff which remains together not even forever, of course, because it goes into powder for a long time, for a while. Right. Um, so to better understand the world, I think we shouldn't reduce it to things. We should reduce it to happening and the happening are always between uh, different systems, always relations, mm. are always... Mm. Uh, uh, like a kiss, which is something that happened between two persons. So even for you, a stone is a happening, seen in the long expanse of time and an understanding of how it became what it is. It's yeah. a happening, I mean, not if a thing. We, we, live, uh, we live a hundred years, but suppose we lived a billion years. A stone would be just a moment in which some sand gets together mm-hmm. and then it disgregates. So it's just a momentary getting together of sand. The permanence of things is a, it's a matter of the we look at them for a short time with respect to their own state mm. together. I, I want to read another um, passage from your writing. A handful of types of elementary particles which vibrate and fluctuate constantly between existence and non-existence and swarm in space, even when it seems that nothing is there, combine together to infinity like the letters of a cosmic alphabet to tell the immense history of galaxies, of the innumerable stars, of sunlight, of mountain, woods, and fields of grain, of the smiling faces of the young at parties, and of the night sky studded with stars. (laughs) (laughs) I I Thank you for reading this. I think what I wanted to convey is the sense that if you think that reality is just quantum fields and uh, or, or, or atoms or nothing else, yeah. it does not mean that it's dry. It means that there is out of that there is space for incredible complexity, including uh, the galaxies, the, the 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 woods, the forest, and including our own emotions, yeah. our own uh, uh, complexity as human beings. Um, to think in that the scientific description of the world, uh, it's, it's basically right that there's nothing else from it. It does not mean denying the complexity of, of, of what we are. To the opposite, it means bringing it together in a, in a unitary way with what we know about the world. And, you know, it seems to me that our understanding of time... Well, as well as space, but let's stay with time as, you know, what did Einstein say? Time is a stubbornly persistent illusion or our our sense of time's past, present and future, this arrow moving forward. I mean, time, I think we we all experience as this basic element we, we move through and work with and struggle with and try to control and organize, <laughs> or, you know, or lose to through the course of every day. And I feel like the way Einstein re- imagined but the way physics has understands time now is just such a, a huge example of how we have 
yet to even begin to internalize the reality of time. Do you know what I'm saying? That's a sort of complicated sentence. Yes, very well. Um, I know what you say very well. First of all, it intrigues you and uh, intrigues me and I think intrigues so many people. Um, what has happened is that we have learned that our uh, direct intuition of time uh, we, we have a very good idea of what time is, right? I mean, if you ask uh, somebody who doesn't know physics what time is, he knows what time is. is that? But that idea of time is wrong. It's not wrong uh, for us. I mean, we have, I don't know, one hour for talking and, and that's one hour and uh, right, number right. of years for living and so on and so forth. But it, it's an approximation. It's like the earth being flat around us. Um, the more you learn about nature, the more you discover cover that at some fundamental level time is not there and in the basic equations of the theory on which uh, I and many colleagues are working now in quantum gravity, time is just there's nothing like time yeah. uh, so in that sense time does not exist uh, but does not, this doesn't mean that it does not exist for us but let me tell you something which I think is central you, you quoted a, a sentence by, a phrase by uh, Einstein uh, in which he says uh, that uh, time is a sort of a persist, stubborn, persistent illusion yeah. and it doesn't exist. Um, Einstein wrote that, but he wrote that in a letter addressed to the sister and the family of uh, his best friend, uh, Michele Besso, who had just died. I did not know that. So... Yes. So this is not in a text to physicists or to philosophers. It's in a letter to a sister who has uh, just lost his brother, a family who has just lost a member of the family. Mm. So the content is not a discussion about the structure of reality. It's a letter to console. It's a letter in which Einstein expresses his love for Michele, who has been his uh, companion and... Uh, and uh, in that phrase, Einstein writes, for people like Michele and me, time is. So he's uh, talking about his relation between, uh, with, uh, with Michele, and he's talking clearly about his own loss of Michele and his own being in front of death, because uh, right. Einstein died uh, one month and a little bit after Michele. So he's, he's, he's oh. very close to Einstein's death. And when he's saying there is something illusory yeah. in time. I think he's talking about emotions and he's talking about something in a sense deeper and more important uh, than the physical nature of time. He's talking about the, the illusory of, of, of life, of our experiences. Uh, I, I don't think that phrase by Einstein should be taken too literally. So in, in a sense what you're saying also is that it's partly Einstein pointing at this challenge of working with time as we understand it scientifically and time as we understand it as human beings? Or or simply being, a, are you saying he's really just, he's being a human being there? <laughs> I think he's, in that phrase, is deeply being a human being and, uh, and, and talking about uh -huh. his love with Michele and also implicitly talking about his own attitude toward death, which is was coming. A, a month yeah. later, he's dead. Um, but yeah. certainly time is something which... Uh, touches us in death in, pr profoundly because is uh, is uh, think about time is thinking about our finitude um, we're not going to live forever and uh, uh, the, what is this time in which we are immersed I mean there's no time at fundamental level and nevertheless we human beings live in time we, are, we, are, we live in time like fish in the water right for us it's impossible to think of ourselves without time so I do think there is more to understand there and I do think it's a different question, what is time in the fundamental level of physics, from the question, mm -hmm. what is time for us? And for us, it touches a lot of things, including emotional things. can listen again and share this conversation with Carlo Rovelli through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment.
On Being is supported in part by Penguin Books, announcing the paperback release of Krista Tippett's New York Times bestselling book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Buy the paperback now, wherever books are sold. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're exploring how all of reality is interaction with theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli. His global bestseller, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, was originally written as a series of articles for an Italian newspaper. We're experiencing how he renders vast, complex ideas winsomely and movingly. What he's learning through science is illuminating philosophically, politically, and in terms of what Carlo Rovelli calls the constant huge wave of happenings that is a human self. I wonder how, if it's possible to briefly just describe what time is for you and as a physicist. <laughs> a fantastic problem to work about. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, a something which, uh, first of all, it's not a single notion. It's not either there is time or there is not time. It's what we mean by time. Um, when we think about time, for instance, we think time is the same for everybody. And we know it's not true. I mean, time passes mm-hmm. a little bit faster in the mountain and a little bit slower in the, in, near the sea. The more high you go, the more uh, time passes fast. So it's relative to how we move, where we are, and and, and so on. Mm-hmm. I think that um, in the fundamental equation of the world, as we have understood so far, we can forget about time. They, they're not about how things evolve in time. It's about relations between within variables. I think that's more or less we can understand. The real problem is from there to come back. And uh, in this timeless world, to understand what is this thing that we experience as time. Mm. And that's a problem in thermodynamics. And also, I think this problem is related to what we are as human beings. To a large extent, what we call time is our memory, our anticipation. I think we're going to understand entirely what time is uh, when we better understand what we are. So I think that time is, is an approximate thing, not a fundamental thing in the world. Like up and down. Up and down are, make, make sense here on Earth, but not in the space. Right. So once you said, you said somewhere, you wrote, the passage of time is internal to the world, is born in the world itself. So, so here, here's what a very intriguing thing you say, again, as a physicist, um, to the question of what explains that for us time seems to pass or to flow. And you say you believe this is connected to the connection between time and heat, that the difference between past and future exists only when there is heat. That is such a baffling and fascinating idea. I mean, can oh, you just can you explain this, that a little yes. bit? Yes. Oh, this is uh, something that curiously has not been uh, said enough, and uh, mm-hmm. the non-physicists don't know it, but it's not something new, and it's something well established. Um, in fact, since not the last century, but the previous century, it's, it's, uh, every time we give a description of the world of phenomena where there is no heat, we cannot distinguish the past from the future. Every time there is something that distinguishes the past from the future, uh, there is heat. So uh, they take a movie of something and run it backward. Uh, imagine you take a movie of mm-hmm. the moon going around the Earth. You run it backwards and you see the moon going around the Earth the other way. It's completely consistent with the laws of physics. And there's no heat there. Um, but right. if you throw a pen uh, on, the, on the table and it stops, you take a movie of that, if you run the movie backward, uh, you see something totally absurd, a pen that starts moving from nothing. And in fact, when the pen stops, it hits the table because there's friction and there is heat. So only when there is some heat around, the phenomena are different in one direction of time from the other. So the direction of time is deeply connected to the existence of heat. That doesn't explain the direction of time, but it's a first step toward understanding it. it uh, is, time, mm-hmm. The direction of time has to do with the presence of heat. Is there a way that we experience this unconsciously in kind of our daily interactions or our sense of time? Or is that just a separate experience? 
I think our own experience of the world, our thinking, our being, our emotions uh, are so much uh, produced by our brain, our body, which are uh, full of heat, <laughs> a deeply thermodynamical <laughs> <Okay>. thing. <laughs> so we cannot get out from this presence of heat when we think huh. about our experience. When you think, your brain produces heat. Um, when you wake up in the morning, your body produces heat. When you have an emotion, there is heat producing. And so we, in our experience, are children of uh, the presence of heat in the world. I think that uh, in, in a world completely without heat, we wouldn't make sense. We wouldn't be able to think. We wouldn't huh. have memory. Memory requires heat. So because there's so much heat in us and that we generate all the time, time, <laughs> all the time, time... Yes seems to be this dynamic, rapid... I mean, I think we time we experience time as a bully, you know, for much of our lives, at least the way we live now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, there's something we did understand about heat, a little bit after having understood this relation between heat and time, which is heat that has to do with the microstructure of space. And like, What is heat? Heat is, a, is, is the fact that there are all many molecules moving fast, so the second step is to understand that heat has to do with the fact that there is a microstructure we don't see. A hot glass of water is a glass of water where the molecules move very fast. A cold glass of water right. is the same glass of water where the molecules don't move much. But we don't see the individual molecules. So we talk right. about heat because there is a sort of um, defocusing. There is a, there is a big uh, simplification in the world as we perceive it. There is a coarse graining as we perceive it. A, as we perceive right. it, exactly. And that's one of the things I think we should understand better and we don't have yet understood well. So the relation between times and heat is clear. But the next step, which is how come that time in some sense, emerges when there are many, many degrees of freedom which are not under control. That's something we should understand better. Um, it's one of the mysteries uh, of uh, against mm. which physics is struggling right now. I think. Hmm. There's something else you say that just. I mean, I feel like we've now really we're really straddling physics and philosophy as as you do. Um, just a, a final thing in that sense that. You say that in physics there is nothing that corresponds to now or to here, that here exists in the mind of the speaker. I, I was just—I just want to tell you—I was just working on a program we're doing with a somebody who's a brilliant person in conflict resolution uh -huh. in Northern Ireland, uh -huh. and it was so interesting to me to be revisiting your ideas and having that conversation in my mind because he also said from a very different perspective, you know, that here and now are always subjective. For all the people sitting in a room, even if they are sitting together in the room, um, that here <laughs> is a different something one. different. Yes, um, it always means something different. And and you're saying the same thing as a physicist through physics. Yes, um, the, the the philosopher call it indexicality. There are. Uh, let me put it this way: physics struggles to give an objective picture of reality as much as possible, which is very fine. Very good. So it's, it's reality as seen from the as much as possible from the outside. But if you look from the outside, uh, you you always miss something, which is a perspective from the inside, right? If you have a if you have a map right. of a region and you want to use it, you want to know where you are <laughs> in the map. So you need an extra information, which is where you are. And and there are words like uh, here, like me, that have a meaning that depend yeah. of on who says it. If I say I'm Carlo, it's true, but if you say I'm Carlo, it's false. Uh, so the same sentence is uh, depends who... who is um, so mm. I think there is an aspect of reality which is strongly connected to its uh, relational aspect. We perceive reality not from the outside, but from the inside. And there is a little difference between right. each one of us, obviously, and we have to keep this into account. And I think keeping this into account, it's one of the ingredients for making sense of what time is. And maybe also one of the ingredients for learning how to deal with one another a little bit better by remembering that we always have perspective on things and everybody has a slightly different perspective than everybody else. Yes, and it's so resonant 
in the world right now. I mean, you know, I think like when I'm talking to this conflict resolution person and he talks, you know, basically, I mean, you can almost see it in terms of physics that the, the whole ex- the experiences that propelled any every individual in a group into a room to talk about conflict or to interact mm-hmm. are so different. And that, it, that all of that is what means all of that is going on, swirling around in each of these people, infusing what the definition of here or now is. But it's all kind of beneath the surface. Just we don't see that complexity of each other, as you're saying, just as we don't see the true complexity. Here's somewhere you said we realize physics opens windows through which we see far into the distance. What we see does not cease to astonish us. We realize that we are full of prejudices and that our intuitive image of the world is partial, parochial, inadequate. Yes. Uh, um, if I may say something, not as a physicist, but as a human being, I don't know, as a, as a citizen, I mm. think that uh, a lot of what is happening now is becoming blind to the fact that we succeed cooperating and uh, and there is a increasing all, all over, uh, not just in the United States, but also uh, in India, in Europe, and in many parts of the world, a push towards seeing us, one another, as, as enemies instead of uh, collaborators. I mean, the humanity groups, uh, humanity as a whole, succeed if it works together, not if it works one against the other one. We, we, have, we have seen conflicts and war and disaster so much. And I'm afraid we're moving in that direction, and I, I, I would like to do everything I can, but I can very little to stop this drive. And when you describe that there's the strangeness in quantum physics where particles only exist when they hit something else, is related to the fact that human being, a human being is a set of his interactions with his fellow human beings around him. I mean, that works in every direction, right? I mean, we can be interacting as enemies or interacting as fellow citizens with whom we're trying to build a common life. Yes, I mean, the, the, the two different things. Of course, we, we can also exist as warriors and we interact as by making war right. to one another, but the result is often a disaster for everybody. Yeah. If we interact as by collaborating, um, everybody gains, I think. Right. I mean, if I take this idea of yours, this overriding idea that comes out of a life in physics, that reality is only interaction, ultimately, then... It seems also like the failure to interact or the failure of interaction is actually a move against vitality, against life. Is that interpreting too much? <laughs> it is an analogy. I, I agree with that. I, I think that analogies are very good and uh, uh, help us. Uh, it's, uh, the, the two things are separated, of course. One thing is to understand mm-hmm. that uh, in, in physics we... Uh, we can better understand the world through interaction. And one thing is to export that to our politics, our society, or or, or human life. I mean, I think analogies are good. And in general, using ideas that come from one field in another one is good. It doesn't prove anything. But look, I don't think that I as a person exist uh, without the rest. I am my friends, my my love, my enemies, my mm. uh, everything that uh, I interact with. Uh, all my ideas come from things I've read, I've talked, uh, which are all interactions. And all what I do is interacting with the rest. And the same is true for communities. Communities uh, are what they are because they've been strongly influenced by different communities <laughs> and they're going to influence other communities yeah. and so on and so yeah. forth. Um, this, I think, is not a proof of anything, but this, I think, uh, it's going to help us if we digest that instead of going in the direction of defending us from the others. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the physicist Carlo Rovelli, who's written the slim, beautiful bestseller, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. To me, this is a way of inserting this this lesson from history that you take, that you lay out in your writing, that, that science does and can shape 
our understanding of the world, our our character, it, it, you know, or I don't know, you've said our soul or our the quality of our presence in the world in ways that are not merely scientific. I want to ask you this: if, if in fact, as the title of your book, "Reality Is Not What It Seems," that I mean, again, these to me, these are some of the things you've written that seem so resonant for so much else that you know our senses often don't tell us the truth about reality. That this is an interesting one: that understanding the world better often entails going against your intuition. But for you, on a grand scale, you you have a sense of the complexity of reality and the cosmos um, that is so far beyond our senses. So here's the question. How, how does this change the way you move through the world? Is this something you're able to kind of work with? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I'm able, but I do <laughs> work with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the idea that uh, our senses can uh, uh, mislead us this idea it, it's very old, right? It uh, it goes back uh, to antiquity. In fact, the key idea of a good part of uh, Greek uh, philosophy, uh, some philosopher took it even too strongly, say, "Oh, we shouldn't believe at all what we, our, our senses say. Reality is completely different." Nowadays, of course, we we rely on what we see, uh, but we have learned, and I think we have learned deeply that uh, we are like children. Namely, we start with a naive idea about the world. We start with a naive vision about the world, and then slowly we learn more. Uh, we learn more because we grow, like children grow. So society has grown, civilization has grown, and uh, and has grown by learning from experience, from other people, from books, from 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 experiments, from all sorts of stuff. And uh, what we have learned is, uh, as you say, the complexity. The world is much more complex than what it looks at first sight. I look at this glass of water and it's just quite uh, transparent. Uh, and But I know that, in fact, it's a, it's mm. a crazy zigzagging of molecules <laughs> down there which do all sorts of stuff and, uh, and how fast they move the temperature and so on and so forth. And uh, this complexity, which is at all level guard us from being driven by too simple-minded uh, thing. I mean, I, th- I think we should keep in mind that the world is complex. We have a good way mm. of dealing with the world, right? Society works, civilization works. We are, we are alive and we are several billions of us on Earth and uh, many more than before. And in fact, we are actually more of us on Earth, uh, which are out of deep poverty and uh, and have education and uh, and things to live m- much more than in the past, so we're not doing too bad. Mm. But at the same time, uh, we know that this knowledge we have uh, it's fragile, and uh, we don't have full knowledge at all. Nothing guarantees that uh, we do better tomorrow at all. We are not guaranteed by anything. I mean civilization could stop tomorrow. I mean, the, the, the earth is, uh, is becoming warmer and it could be a catastrophe. We are too many on earth and this might lead out a catastrophe. And worst of all, we are fighting against us more and more and this could yeah. get more yeah. catastrophe. So there is a sense of fragility, which I do have, both in the... Uh, I don't think I know the truth. I think I know a little bit about the world. Right. And... Uh, I know deeply that I have no access to any final truth, to any absolute truth. I know deeply that uh, my brain is limited. There's something I understand. Sometimes I feel I understand better than somebody else, and sometimes, no, I feel that somebody else understands better than me. Um, And I know that my life is limited. I have a certain number of years to live, and and that's it. Maybe humanity itself has a limited uh, life. I don't think there's anything that guarantees us uh, beyond uh, that. Can we live with this uncertainty? Can we live with this uh, fragility? I think we do. We can. And And, uh, even more. Our brains also, I was just going to say, I think our brains also resist fragility and resist the knowledge that our life is limited, kind of work against that reality? Um, maybe. I don't know. Uh, some We're different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of us more, some of us less. Uh, yeah. we, have, uh, we, have, we, we are terrorized when, when death approach, of course, because I think we had an instinct of escaping from the tiger when the tiger was, arri- was arriving. It's a good instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but fear of death just by itself, I don't think it's a, it's really a, a universal feeling. I think it's a, it's a feeling that many people might not have, mm. and uh, we can accept. The fact that our life is limited, like we accept there is the sun and the, there is the sea and the mountains, is a fact of life. Mm. In fact, I find it uh, reassuring, not scaring, the fact that uh, this is a, a short life and that's it. And in fact, I find, because of psychology we have, this is what makes it precious. That's why we like it, yeah. that's why we love it. If, we had, mm. if I had to live forever, which I would be scared to death of living forever because <laughs> life is beautiful but also, <laughs> also painful sometimes. So I don't, want, I mean, I don't want life to live forever. I want to live for a short time and uh, as better as I can and better with my fellow travelers through time mm. and uh, expressing part of me and uh, I think that this fragility this lack of full knowledge, uh, this limitation of life uh, is something one can live very well with and is much more reassuring than any potential of knowing the, the bottom of truth of reality or, or any idea of living forever Yeah, I mean I find it incredibly useful. I mean, this this. I mean, I'm going to be working with this now. This notion that even a human being, an individual, is a is not a thing but a happening. That right. That you say somewhere, an individual is a process, complex, tightly integrated. I I feel that that this way of thinking also about us and about ourselves and about others does let in the richness and strangeness of what it is to be human and the complexity of our interactions with each other. Uh, yes, and uh, there's a complexity of interaction with the others, and there's also the complexity of uh, ourself. My body is enormously more complex than what I'm aware of. The number of things that happen in my brain every every second is far, far more rich than what is my awareness of myself, what I'm conscious about. Right. So we are very complicated things, um, which is fine. And we have a certain partial control of what we are. This is something, by the way, which is uh, strongly emerging from modern contemporary scientific research on, on, on brains, neurons, and so on. And there's all sorts of things that happen inside us, and we have no idea why. Sometimes we, we, we're afraid and we don't know why. Sometimes we're happy we don't know why. And uh, our memory is a teeny, teeny synthesis of all information that got into us. And we are like living on the top of this huge wave of, of happenings, which, which is our self, I think. Yeah. I, um, I just, I want to read this because it's so beautiful. Um, and then maybe you'll have just some final words. It is part of our nature to love and to be honest. It is part of our nature to long to know more and to continue to learn. Our knowledge of the world continues to grow. There are frontiers where we are learning and our desire for knowledge burns. They are in the most minute reaches of the fabric of space, at the origins of the cosmos, in the nature of time, in the phenomenon of black holes, and in the workings of our own thought processes. Here, on the edge of what we know, in contrast with the ocean of the unknown, shines the mystery and the beauty of the world. And it's breathtaking. <laughs> Thank you for reading this. The, um, mm. Yeah, it's it's my vision of the world is also, um, how would I say, it's also my, my dream about myself, right? I would like to think of myself as somebody who tries to look far away. Each of us has a one dream of what we would like to be. I would like to I see myself an explorer who tries to, to look ahead. And that's, I think, it's not, mm. as I said before, it's not the only... It's certainly not the only important thing for humanity, but I think it's important also that for humanity. And each of us tries to do something for humanity, and that's the direction in which I've been trying to go. What is the Italian word for breathtaking? Or what is that? What is the word you wrote in Italian? <laughs> um, bello da togliere il fiato. It's not a single word. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a phrase, uh, to take away the breath. Bello da togliere il fiato. To take away the breath. Yes. I see. Okay. Well, I'm very happy that you chose to talk to me today. <laughs> <laughs>
However choice really works. <laughs> it's just, I'm, I'm glad you're writing these books. And um, thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Carlo Rovelli is professor of physics at Marseille University, where he's director of the Quantum Gravity Group in the Center for Theoretical Physics. He's also director of the Sami Maroun Research Center for Time, Space, and the Quantum. His books include Seven Brief Lessons on Physics and Reality is Not What It Seems, The Journey to Quantum Gravity. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, and Rick Sarwangchuk. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Don Templeton Foundation, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is supported in part by Penguin Books, the publishers of Krista Tippett's New York Times bestselling book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, now in paperback. Maria Popova says, Becoming Wise is a tremendously vitalizing read, touching on every significant aspect of human life with great gentleness and a firm grasp of human goodness. Find the paperback now wherever books are sold. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.